I consciously avoid trying to craft what I want to do next. Because the risk is then you get too focused on the next thing as opposed to doing what you're doing really well and enjoying it. And you start waiting for life and you should never wait for life. You've got to make the most of every moment. So I'm not trying to be glib. I'm actually telling you, no, I know. this is not a good idea to spend time thinking about, oh, I'm doing this for now, but I really want to do that because I've seen people do that in their careers and their lives and it usually ends up with a bad outcome because you're not focused on really enjoying what you're doing right now and having a good time. Focus on that. Focus on loving what you do, having a great time and stuff's going to work out. Hi, I'm Jubin, operating partner at Kleiner Perkins, and I'm excited that you're tuning into Grit. The goal of this is not for it to be a highlight reel of how successful my guests are, rather a candid exploration of how hard it is, both personally and professionally, to create, build, and scale world-class organizations. If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe, leave a review, and make sure to follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter. Thanks. You came in here for the CIO briefing. Yes. There was like, you did two sessions or one? I did one here and one in Austin. That's right. And I remember, cause we have, you know, anyone from the Accenture CEO, Julie, to all sorts of public company CEOs. And the immediate feedback from everybody was, this dude is more honest than most public company CEOs. That's good. And I felt the same way. And I'll tell you, I actually usually don't like having public CEOs on this show because- They don't tell you anything. They don't say anything. Uh, this, is not a, this is not a good setup. You're trying to get me no, to no, say- No, no, no. I'm saying like they have their stacks of paper. Yeah. And they just talk to the paper. And I'm like, you know who surprised me? Thomas Curran. TK was so honest and just like- I have to go listen to it. Anyway, dude, I appreciate you doing this. You know who we had- on who we just released on Monday, who was in this room a few weeks ago, is Claire. Claire Johnson. Yes. 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 And I, I heard she's written a book. She's written. She's written a book. It's about actually, scaling people. It's actually really good. She used to work for me. You know that. Right? I know. I know. I actually have a picture here, which is hilarious. And this is you in the with queen. the Queen. Yes. And that's Lorraine and Dennis Woodside. And Dennis Woodside, who was in this room not long ago. Yes, he's the one emailed me. And yes. that's right. And then I think to your left is probably Omid. And then behind the queen, I think, is Philip, probably. Possibly. I and wonder. There was Rachel Whetstone and there was Jason Wheeler, who was at one point in time CFO of Tesla. Were all these amazing people amazing? And then they came to what was a great opportunity at Google? Or do you think that it was the inverse? Meaning they were pretty good and then they saw an amazing level of scale and accomplished so much that now they're doing all of these things. I like to say it's a bit of both. Yeah. Because uh, Lorraine was a marketing contractor at Google Europe when I joined. She's amazing at what she does. She's got really good intuition, really good marketing insight. But I don't know what her budget is. Probably close to $10 billion now. Probably one of the top five marketing budgets in the world, if you will. We perfected the art in Google Europe. We used to do no marketing. Uh, we perfected the art when... I worked at Google, my peers were Tim Armstrong, Sheryl Sandberg, Sheryl went to Facebook, mm -hmm. Tim went off to become CEO of AOL. I guess I was last man standing, and Omid said he wanted to take some time off and retire. Eric Schmidt called me and said, do you want to come to California and take Omid's job? Jonathan Rosenberg, who was chief product officer of Google, who used to have marketing report to him, said, listen, buddy, you guys are doing a much better job of marketing in Europe than we do in the rest of the world. Now you're going to move here. Why don't you just run marketing as well? 
I said, one condition, can I bring Lorraine? He's like, yeah, sure. It's your team now. You do whatever you want. So I said, come on, Lorraine, let's go do this. So Lorraine came along. She became head of marketing for Google and the rest is history. Was that a dream job for you? Like when you were coming out here, where'd you move from? I joined Google in London. I was uh, chief marketing officer of T-Mobile International. Yep. I was in my 30s. I was commuting from London to Bonn. And I'd go on Monday morning and come back Thursday night and used to hang out with a lot of German people trying to market mobile services in Europe. And I'm like, what am I doing? So one day I decided to mutually with my boss saying, listen, this is not right. So I came back to London, hung out there, and I was writing a business plan to start a company. And a friend- You were? Yeah. You're going to start a company? I started one. Oh, no kidding. I started one called T-Motion, which is not as cool today because at that time we used to program Nokia phones, which had just come out with WAP capability. It's called Web Application Protocol, I think. And we used to let you read the news or get stock prices on it at that point in time in 2000, right after the last internet bubble. Okay. And what happened to it? Well, there's a company in Japan called iMode, which used to do the same thing. And then the thing came out called the iPhone. Yeah. And people say, oh, wait, you can do this stuff on the iPhone. Why do I need that Nokia phone? And they're, you know, like, we kind of never pivoted to apps, Yeah, which is what we should have done. Yeah. But it got bought by T-Mobile. That's how I ended up in head of product and marketing at T-Mobile. My dad was born in Bonn. My grandparents live in Bonn. It's a joke, right? Bonn to be wild. <laughs> when you were there at T-Mobile, what told you it wasn't working? When you say it wasn't working, like what was the signal for you? You know, when I was on a plane many years ago, this guy told me the two most important things in life are you wake up in the morning, you should be energized to go do what you do for a profession. And as the day comes to an end, you should be excited about going back home to meet your family and hang out with your kids and your family because you feel like you've done an honest days of work and had a lot of fun. And I just couldn't get up in the morning and get really excited about what I did in my 30s. I'm like, wow, this is not working. It paid a lot of money, but it's like, it was complicated. There's a lot of different things that went on and trying to market the brand in multiple countries. And it's a collection of companies we'd bought and they all had their own CEOs. They all wanted to do their own thing, which makes sense. And that's not the job that I wanted to do in the long term. But it was fun. I learned marketing. And when you left T-Mobile, was there like a official search for you to go figure out, no pun intended, figure out what's next? For me personally, no. Yeah, I was, I was did, hanging did, out. I was hanging out with a guy who used to work with me at T-Mobile. You know, I've been very privileged. I worked with some amazing people. And the good ones that followed me around in multiple places. So, you know, when I went to T-Mobile, one of the guys who I'd hired out of my finance class in Boston College, who there's a separate funny joke around him. He's like, it was my first hire ever. He sat next to me. I said, I'm looking for somebody to hire. He's like, hire me. And he's Spanish. And I said, I need somebody who has good Excel skills. He says, I have great Excel skills. My Excel is as good as my Spanish. Well, a week later, I said, talk to me in Spanish. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure you're Spanish because your Excel sucks. So, you know, he I've known him for 30 years. And then he followed me from, at that time, Fidelity Investments and Putnam. He came with me. And then he, when I went to T-Mobile, he came there and helped me out. And then he went off to run a fund in Spain. And there was a guy called David Tevanon who worked with me after that at T-Mobile who spun out with me and we wrote a business plan to start a mobile virtual network operator in London. The reason that I'm digging at this, and I've heard you say this in the past, is that you do not have a career plan. Is that right? You like, and it shows in the- What is a career? Diversity of your experiences. You tell me. I don't know. I think it's about getting up in the morning, having a great time, doing something useful and getting paid for it. But you're very driven. 
Like you're a very driven person. It's very obvious. Does your drive ever consume you to plan for what's next? Like, especially in the earlier days of the Googles and the T-Mobiles, does that not overcome you with wanting to control the outcome in some way? I think that's the fallacy. You cannot control the outcome. That's the problem. You've got to be able to do stuff. I've always felt whatever you do, you do it to the best of your ability and try and beat everybody around you at it. So you're really good at it. And if you do really good work in whichever field you choose, good things will happen. Otherwise, I could not draw a straight line through what is you're referring to as my career path. I picked up skills in the way. I did money management. I did investing. I did financial planning at Fidelity. I did marketing. I built telecom products. I did pricing. Telecom is all about pricing. They don't really build products. The products come from like network operator, infrastructure guys. I did ad sales at Google. I did biz dev at Google. I did corp dev at Google. I did marketing at Google. I did customer support there. And then I came to Palo Alto. I did, sorry, in the meantime, I went to SoftBank. I did a bunch of board work and did a bunch of investing at growth. And then I came to Palo Alto Networks, given all my vast experience in cybersecurity That's in my right. life. Uh, and enterprise businesses. Exactly, right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what is it, you know, I joked that the board of Palo Alto must have been extremely insightful. They found a guy for to be a CEO and knew nothing about cybersecurity, nothing about running enterprise businesses, and never been a public company CEO. Other than that, <laughs> sounds like a great thing. Exactly. I wonder when you're going into the next job, what's the feeling like for you internally? When you're walking into T-Mobile before you've gone there, Google, SoftBank, Palo Alto, is there a consistent feeling that you get internally? Is there some mix of anxiety, excitement, feeling like you're out ahead of your skis, which is motivating for you? Does there anything that is a signal for you that like, yep, I'm going into something that I don't exactly know and I kind of like that? You know, one thing which has always inspired me is that I've always found myself in situations where I'm learning. Half the stuff that I do in any new job is stuff I've never done before. I spent a lot of time trying to learn cybersecurity. I still try hard to try and learn it, and I'm still working on it. And I'm, I tried hard to learn marketing. I tried hard to learn how investing is done. And that's exciting, being able to go in and say, okay, I'm going to now master a new skill, which I've never done before. But you know what? I'm logical. I'm analytical. There are other people who do it really well. I can learn from them, and I can probably get half as good as them. That's a good start because I have other skills, which I bring to the table, which I think I'm really good at. So it's a combination of stuff that I bring, hopefully, and stuff that I learn. And the one thing that's consistent in that career trajectory that you're talking about, it's always been something I've learned and something I brought. And imagine, like, I'll get to the analogy which I use for business when I hire people and I run businesses in a minute, but I couldn't do a maintenance job. I'd probably screw it up. You put me in a situation to say, everything's working great, just make sure you mind the shop. I probably change everything because I'm going to be trying to see how can I get more out of what's out there. Mm -hmm. When you were growing up, it was in India, right? Yeah. What was conversation like for you at the dinner table? One of the things that my partner, Ted, who you might know, Ted Schlein, Ted. Yeah, and um, he's a big cybersecurity investor. Oh yeah, big yes. time. Yes. And uh, one of the things that he always talks about is how most of the learning happens when he was a kid and with his children at the dinner table. And I completely believe that. I wonder for you, what was that conversation like with your folks in India? You know, that's a good question. I, I would modify what Ted says. Yes, learning happens at the dinner table or the transference of value systems happens at dinner tables. So you may not remember the precise conversation about what you learned, but you know 
what your family prides most and what your parents or your brothers and sisters are trying to instill into each other. And my father worked for the Indian Air Force. He was a lawyer. He was always about doing the right thing. And he was constantly confronted with things which were not right because that was his job to adjudicate on what was right, what was wrong. So at our family table, there was very little gray. Things were, this is the right thing to do and this is not the right thing to do. So you always walked in, you wanted to do the right thing and you wanted to do the best that you could do. I think that's kind of the value that got instilled. And my mother in her own right is an amazing person. She had a master's in math and Sanskrit and in those times that was unusual. So she was as well read as my father. And she was all about making sure we applied ourselves to learning. Yeah. So I think the values that got instilled early in my sister and I is make sure that you're constantly learning. There's a lot out there. And make sure you do the right thing. Was it more process or outcome oriented? Meaning, was there more emphasis on achievement or more emphasis on the process of just learning? India is a resource constrained country. Yeah. So I'm sure you run into a lot of us over here. And you have to create results. It's just can't. It's not just about the process. There has to be outcomes. There has to be results. And to some degree, as long as we stay on the right side of the line, any process is a good process as long as you can deliver consistent That's outcomes. Right. That's right. Was there a lot of tables for you? Meaning, he was in the Air Force. Did you move around a bunch? Yes, yes. I think I've been to six schools before I graduated high school. Did that give you a chip on your shoulder? Like you could never have like a real friend? I don't know how those two correlate. I think it makes you feel like you should have had a friend that lasted through your uh, schooling. I don't know if it gives you a chip on the shoulder. It gives you a sense of, uh, I wish I had stayed in one place long enough that I could have friends that I can hark back to yeah. in 50 years. When but I, I do have friends. When I say chip on my shoulder or on your shoulder, I mean like when I moved to San Diego for high school, I didn't know a single person there. And I felt the chip on my shoulder to fit in. Like I was very keen on feeling like I was part of everything else with everybody else, which is why I use sports to harness some version of identity that I felt like I had a really hard time coming up with when I didn't have a consistent group of friends there. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. Look, as you say in life, you know, when you go through an experience, it either tells you you want to conform or it tells you that it doesn't matter. So I think I went to the, the opposite school of thought that you, and I walked in and moved around so often. I'm like, what? I'm going to be here for a few years. Do I really have to fit in? Maybe I'll be out by the time I fit in, so don't try too hard to fit in. It's okay. 449 letters that you wrote. Yes. Can you talk to me about that? I still have them. Can you tell the audience, like, what, what is that? I came to the U.S. to go to business school in 1990. It was one of those years when the recession was in swing, and I graduated from Northeastern University with an MBA degree, which at that time wasn't as good as it is ranked today. And I wanted to get a job in finance. I was voted most likely to end up on Wall Street. So I thought, well, because everybody around me thinks, so this must be true. <laughs> because there was no Google, then you couldn't ask it that question. So you just believed everybody, what everybody told you. And I figured I'd apply. In those days, you know, there was no LinkedIn. And you went and found the alumni directory and you, you harassed people. So I rented a Mac and I typed letters to approximately 450 different contacts whose addresses I had. And I sent those letters. Me and my wife would put stamps on them, write addresses on them, and mail them in 1992. And I graduated off my class. I thought, somebody want to hire me. The good news is uh, I had a rudimentary mailing system, and they had a much better one. They'd promptly respond back saying, thank you for your interest. Uh, 
but no thank you. And I have all versions of those where, you know, somebody's paper ran out, a ribbon ran out, and it's half printed, the other half didn't print, but I have the letter. It's funny, I go back and look at them very often, and there's some really important people who are CEOs of companies have signed them in the past because at that time they were managers or right. in HR. So I have north of 400 rejection letters in 1992, which says you don't qualify for a job here. You kept some of them? All of them. No way. I have photocopies, what is called photocopies, and I just have two sets just in case I lose one. Some people have a f***ing trophy case. You have your rejection letters. And I go back and look at them. I remember very clearly, you know, uh, the founder of Silver Lake, Glenn Hutchins, was not a Silver Lake then. He wrote me one of those letters and he signed his name. And I ran into him somewhere. I say, hey, by the way, you do know that you wrote me a letter saying I wasn't good enough and now I'm advising Silver Lake. Come on. Yes, of course. Hey, we had a good laugh about it. How often are you revisiting those? Oh, not very Why? often. Maybe what is an occasion that you feel like you need to revisit that? I don't feel the need when I move houses. I'm looking through all the stuff. Yeah, Why yeah. do I have so many boxes? I look through all of them. Oh my God, look, these are those letters. So I go yeah. flip to them and then suddenly I run to someone whose name I recognize, you know, like there's a letter from McKinsey. There's, That's there were seven letters from Fidelity Investments and I got the job there. So the good news is they were not organized. There was no Workday or HRIS system at that point in time. So eight different people sent me eight different letters. <laughs> seven said no, one said yes. That's all I need, one. But you're not, like, there is not a moment when things are shitty. Is that some weird way of you reminding yourself, like, hey, things used to be a lot more shitty? You know, Jobin, I came to this country with two suitcases and $200 which I borrowed from my father. And in the suitcases, half of that suitcase were utensils because I wasn't going to be able to afford them and I'm going to have to cook for myself and a few clothes and a pair of sneakers and one suit. That's what I came in 1990 with. So I got a lot more than that. So this is not a problem. My kids are very happy. They're well taken care of. My wife's happy. She's well taken care of. What could possibly go wrong? I have a hit list of companies not dissimilar from you. When I was trying to get a BDR job straight out of school, I'm not going to list the names, but they're at the tip of Thankfully, my tongue. Thankfully, I heard you work for Palo Alto <laughs> Network, so you're fine. Right, so right. we're, we're, on the, we're not right. on the hit list. We're <laughs> on the good list, right? You're on the good list. That's all we you're need. On the good all right, list. Good. You're on the good list. But even still to this day, when I interact with anyone at those companies, the first thing that I think about, because I can't help myself, is I couldn't get a job cold calling for you 10 years ago. Aren't you happy? You should be saying thank you to them. Imagine you could be sitting there and you could be the best cold caller. You could be like the warm caller now for them and you wouldn't be sitting here at Kleiner Perkins. Did you always know you wanted to be a CEO? Maybe loosely in the back of your head. Was there always this feeling like, you know what? At some point, all roads are going to lead to me running the show. Just the way I've avoided this notion of having a career trajectory. Yeah. I consciously avoid trying to craft what I want to do next. Because the risk is then you get too focused on the next thing as opposed to doing what you're doing really well and enjoying it. And you start waiting for life and you should never wait for life. You've got to make the most of every moment. So I'm not trying to be glib. I'm actually telling you, no, I know. this is not a good idea to spend time thinking about, oh, I'm doing this for now, but I really want to do that because I've seen people do that in their careers and their lives and it usually ends up with a bad outcome because you're not focused on really enjoying what you're doing right now and having a good time. Focus on that. Focus on loving what you do, having a great time and stuff's going to work out. So did I know I wanted to be a CEO? I'll tell you. I have a reasonable independent streak, as you can probably tell. Mm. I don't like a lot of people telling me what to do, which is part of the dinner table conversation. My parents never told me what to do. And there's a lot of, gave me ample freedom to get what I needed to get done, done. And I put my heart and soul into it, did a good job. So that's kind of how I operate. Mm. I don't want people telling me what to do. And I've discovered in the corporate world, you should have one less person to tell you what to do. So promotion is all about having one less person to tell you what to do. 
eventually you're left to the board and somebody at home. Other than that, I don't have a lot of people who tell me what to do. Yeah. When you were at Google, was there points in time where you started to get antsy? 10 years is a pretty incredible run, even at what is probably the greatest company we've ever seen. I just wonder, you strike me as someone that is eager for challenge. Well, there was ample challenge. I joined Google in 2004 when a friend of mine- Post-IPO. Yes. Right after. IPO was in October. I joined on December 14th, Uh 2004. And I was talking to a friend who said to me, hey, listen, there's this company looking for somebody to head Europe. It's too small a job for me because he used to be CEO of T-Mobile UK, who I worked with. He said, but since you're writing your own business plan, maybe you want to go talk to them. So I said, look, I'm busy writing my plan. I've got two people who want to give me some money, but I'll go talk to them. So I went and talked to Omid Khorzestani, who you know, and uh, Omid had a long chat and I went to their office in Soho, which was, I think 6,000 square feet. Soho, London. Yes. Yep. And you know, you had to get there Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, because Thursday, Friday, things would get hairy downstairs by the time the evening came around. So I met Omid there. I'm like, for a company who just went public, which is probably a $20 billion company, this is not a lot of ambition for Europe. You have 6,000 square feet in an interesting part of Soho. Omid had met 40 plus people because they're trying to figure out how to organize Europe. And then I got a call a few days later from the headhunter saying, listen, they want you to talk to more people. I said, who would that be? He said, well, they have a bunch of people who work in Google Europe who they'd like you to talk to. I said, but who am I going to work for? <laughs> so well, you're going to work for Omid and you know, possibly interact with Larry and Sergey. I said, well, then I'd like to meet them first. Because if they don't want me, there's no point in me meeting other people. Right. So as you know, pure coincidence, Larry and Sergey was vis- were visiting Europe, I think two weeks after, which is probably the second time in my career at Google that they ever came to Europe, but they'd already been there once. So this was the, probably the only time. You know, I went with Larry to Spain once. So, <laughs> I mean, if you're showing the queen around, then they're not obviously there. No, they weren't there. Right. I was like, <laughs> there's 150 countries Google operated in. Exactly. So uh, no, he did go with uh, me to Spain to take the award from the king of Spain. So that there makes sense. Yeah. So Larry and Sergey came and Omid was smart. He says, let's go take a walk with him somewhere else, not in the office. He wasn't quite impressed by the office. Sergey and I walked around the British Museum for an hour when he said, great. So he went back and told Eric he'd like Eric to talk to me. I flew to California. I met Eric and met 10 other people and it was very insightful. I walked out, I walked in and Eric and I took a walk and around the campus, he showed me around and he looked at me and says, you know what, Nikesh? It was a bit like a Palo Alto situation. He says, really impressive CV. Love what you've done in life. You've done marketing, you've done money management, but this is a sales job and you've never sold ads. This is about selling ads in Europe. I said, great. You guys just made me spend four weeks talking to all of you guys. You made me fly all the way here. Should I bother meeting the other 10 people you wanted me to meet? Should I get back on the plane? Right. And he said, you know, it doesn't matter. He said, in my experience, the business model of Google and the challenges at Google are going to change so many times. We need somebody who's adaptable and you sound like an adaptable guy. So that's how I got the job in 2004. And that time, there are 2,000 people in the company. I've probably was employee number 2,000. The first vice president hired from outside of the company because they just got public. And Europe was 26% of the Google business. It was like, despite trying hard to make it bigger because in some countries we didn't accept payments. We took credit cards, US dollar denominated credit cards. So that was an easy problem to solve. Yeah. So. I think spent five years hiring a few thousand people, getting an office, which you saw a picture of with the queen visiting. We hired 
5,000 people. We got the revenue up to um, $8 billion. What percentage did it become? There was a bet Tim Armstrong and I had, and I said to Tim that we're going to make the percent of contribution from Europe equal to the percent of contribution to the U.S. I'll just say, in my recollection, we beat him by the time we were done. So we grew faster. And that was the point. You grow faster than the, than the rest of the world, so you can get to a reasonable percentage. What struck you, if anything, about the Sergey and Eric interviews? Like, Because they're obviously not interviewing you for past sales acumen. What are the types of things that you remember them trying to tease out around adaptability and competence for the job, generally speaking? Look, I think both Eric and Sergey, they're extremely smart in their own right. And I think uh, Eric, who I have a lot of respect for, for what he did at Google and generally, I think he's a person who looks at personalities, he looks at chemistry, who looks at competence and tries to see, you know, what am I going to get if I put this in the mix? Am I going to get a better outcome collectively or not? And I think in my sense, that's what he was looking for. He was looking for how is this person going to come interact with Larry and Sergey? How is he going to come interact with Omid? Is Europe going to end up in a better place with him at the helm? Or is this a bad idea for Google and it's going to distract from what Google is about and where it needs to go? I mean, I think that's as simple as that. Yeah. You're sitting there saying, can I put this person in this role? And is that going to be a net positive for the entire system? Are we all going to be better off? Is Europe going to get better at what we need to get done? I don't know what Sergey was looking for. He and I talked about translation for a long time. Maybe he was just trying to pick my brain to see if this guy is truly an engineer or not, or he's just says that. What were you trying to figure out? Do you remember, like, uh, I guess the calculus for you was starting your own company at that point. You're in the middle of a business plan, and this company, Google, there couldn't be more different. I think what was interesting at Google was it was far away from the mothership, which is always good, which is some less people to tell you what to do. They'd show up once in a while and tell you what to do. So you felt like, okay, you can get- When you're in London, you're saying- Yes, yep. so you get a lot more freedom, a lot less people breathing down your neck to go out and do something. It was very much- a startup, like literally, I my authority to spend was $5,000. I ran Europe. I couldn't spend more than $5,000 before calling somebody in California. I couldn't hire a person without getting them to approve it. I can get headcount. It was like, it was a startup. That must have killed you. Or make you stronger. Yeah. <laughs> and when you were in the interview process, you must have known that you would have been the first outside VP coming into the company. Now I know that. At that point in time, I was just did, another guy. And did that didn't matter at that point. No, it was just another guy who's going to come run Google Europe. There wasn't any version of culture stuff that had to be sorted through bringing in an outside person to the well, organization. It, it had to be sorted. They just hadn't sorted it. They had to sort it afterwards. I think for the first <laughs> six months, I wasn't sure if I was in or I was out because uh, there was ample amount of conversations around, well, that's not Googly enough. I'm like, well, if holding people accountable and responsible is not Googly, then Google should hold people accountable and responsible. And we should make that more Googly. Yeah. And how long were you there before the chief business officer role became the thing? Five years. Five years. And then you came back to the mothership. Well, I came, I never was here, so I came to the you mothership. You came to the mothership. That's right, yes. And you moved your family out here. Yep, in two weeks, yeah. And then it was on. It was on in Europe. It was, Europe was great fun for us to go from nowhere to you know, north of 45% of the company's business. We opened 26 offices. It was great fun. Opening 26 offices, Google became more and more relevant over time. I remember sitting across the CEO and she teaching him. He said to me, last night I was deciding if I should meet you or not. And I was talking to my wife and saying, ah, I don't think I need to meet this guy. He's from some company called Google. And my 18-year-old was sitting at the dinner table. She's like, 
dad, of all the things you said you're doing tomorrow, that sounds like the most interesting thing. Why are you not going to meet him? So here you are. Why am I meeting you? I said, well, you're doing a bunch of e-commerce and you should be representing your business on the internet. It's like, well, how would that help me? And I was sitting and teaching him how to search. That was the first thing I had to do. Teach people what search is about. What is searching? You know, how search has we hired people from Cambridge and Oxford professors to do case studies to prove that advertising on the internet was going to deliver ROI for you and much better ROI than going out and putting a television in your storefront. That's what I was doing. It's a pretty good pitch. I'm curious, what's the toughest feedback that anyone ever gave you while you were at Google? Oh, I told you, the first six months, there were people who'd been there for from the beginning and said, he's not Googly enough. And how'd you take that? Like, what does that mean? Like, you're a hard ass? Possibly, possibly things were going great and why did we have to change and things were so wonderful? Why does he have to come and say, you have to go do OKRs and what is an OKR and why does he say that you have to have a budget and a plan, you have to have a target? Things are wonderful, this is great. I remember my first meeting with all the country heads and I said, okay, everybody, I just need two pieces of paper from you. They're like, what is this? I said, first piece of paper, tell me about the internet market in your country. This is the St. Martin's Lane Hotel in London. And the second page, you need to show me how many heads are you going to hire every quarter for the next four quarters and what our revenue in those markets is going to be. Sounds pretty simple. You run a country. In your country, you have people you hire. That's controllable. And there's revenue you generate. Those people are needed for revenue. We're in sales. We had a wonderful meeting, except a lot of people couldn't finish those two sheets of paper. I'm like, what happened? Well, our finance person lives in California in Mountain View, and she's on maternity leave. And we can't find the person who she delegated to. So as soon as we find the person, he's going to send us the data and we'll show it to you. I'm like, that's interesting. So those are the early days. And today, I think it's amazing. Every country has a report, looks at every click that's printed, every advertiser, everything is known. There's a very strong analytical system that's in place now in every country at Google where they know things before they happen almost. Is there one thing that you've taken from them that you consider an organizational superpower that you try and reapply to everything else that you do? One thing that you're like, ah, oh, they really, really got that right. And that's something I never want to not have? Well, I think a lot of things went right. Like you cannot take away from what is probably, like you said, one of the greatest companies has been built in our lifetimes. Mm. And the good news is it is apparent to a lot of people at Google that this was a growth business and was going to be a growth business for a very long time. And we'd barely started to turn the levers on the growth engines because there was a lot of things that you could do. I think in that environment, it's all about scaling right. You know, you can do a lot of self-goals if you don't scale right. And Google is an example of a company that scaled in almost perfect fashion to be able to print as much revenue and as much profit as they do. And I think it's an experience of a lifetime. And you take that forward to wherever you go and say, you know, this is how you think about scaling. Is it surreal watching what feels like the first legitimate threat that they've had in a while now? from the outside looking in, is it a reminder for you that no business is untouchable? As you look at what's happening in the landscape today, what's your impression of it all? It's a good reminder for me to see that, you know what, wow, even one of the greatest business models in the world can't be great forever. Well, you guys live in venture capital land. Yeah. And I think you see this every day. Any 
business area where there is tremendous profits to be made and tremendous opportunity attracts innovation by definition. You're not going to innovate something where there's no money to be made. People will innovate in spaces where there's a lot of money to be made. So anytime you're in a business model where you start to get comfortable, you should stop because somebody's out there trying to reinvent that business to see how can they go extract perhaps some of the profits that some other company's making. And that's the history of capitalism. Look around you, right? Every company that's been complacent or not complacent, perhaps any company that's done really well and made a lot of money, there's always people who want to go and say, if I wish I could just have a little piece of their business. So I think uh, when you're really successful, you have to be even more paranoid. I think somebody already said that, right? Do you feel that way now? Like, does part of you think, oh shit, Palo Alto is ripping. It's on fire. Oh, I'm paranoid like crazy. You know, I'm. Do you I feel was, paranoid, more paranoid now than when course, you started. Of course, four, years, four so. years ago. Of course, five years, almost five years almost ago. Almost five years ago in June. You're yeah. more paranoid. Yes. Come on. Why? You know, five years ago I knew nothing, so I don't. I didn't even know what to be worried about. <laughs> it's like, okay, okay, we're gonna go do cybersecurity. That's cool. What's cybersecurity? Let me go figure this out. Oh, look, this is cool. We can do this. Oh my God, this is working. Today, you sit there and say, okay, you know, I'm reading transcripts of every CEO. I find them fascinating because when I, was a, when I used to be a research analyst at Putnam, I got in the habit of reading quarterly reports and earnings call transcripts. They didn't kind of have them, but you listened to them at that time. I still read them today because this is the most unfiltered way to understand what your competitors are thinking. I don't have to wait to read anybody's report. I can listen to the CEO. They go out there and they're pretty good about explaining what their business is doing every quarter. So I go read the transcripts. I listen to what they have to say. I listen to their voices. How confident do they feel? I try and decipher whether this is real or not. And you can get a reasonably good sense of where they're headed with their business. And then you say, then say well, what does that mean to me? If they're successful at what they're saying, how do I respond? How do I react? Am I really good at this or not? So yes, you know, even this morning, I sent out a bunch of notes to my team. I'm, my team probably gets tired of me sending them notes. Like I send the transcript of a competitor CEO at the Morgan Stanley conference yesterday, where I was saying, He's saying this, I like the way he talks about this. Why aren't we talking about this like this? Yeah. There's always something to learn. And do you feel like there's maybe the paranoia is more of a target on your back now because you are that business? I mean, it is almost $6 billion of revenue. It's, you're talking about being in the Fortune 500. We'll get in the S&P 500 anytime soon. So yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And the S&P 500, I mean, now, I mean, you are the gorilla in the room in some ways, especially in cybersecurity. Well, bigger than we used to be, not as big as we'd like to be. So hopefully we have a lot more room in terms of where we want to go. I think uh, we have a unique opportunity to be able to turn this into one of those evergreen companies in cybersecurity, which hasn't been done before. So it goes back to the conversation you and I had, like, I want to do something that hasn't been done. It hasn't been done yet. We're going to go out and make this hopefully one of those evergreen companies which persist. And for that, the two most important things are innovation and change. This is the most innovative industry in the world. Guess what? The bad actors are not sitting there and saying, oh, you figured out how we do this hack? We'll just try it again. No, we're going to try something else. So guess what? I've got to be in my toes because once we figured out how they did it last time, they're trying a new way to do it next time. So my team has to be constantly on the watch, looking at saying, they're about to try new techniques. And the first thing we're trying to do, we looked at chat GPT, see, can it write malware? If it can, we need to figure out how to protect against it. Well, that's new. That's from last month. So we're constantly paranoid from an innovation perspective. And, you know, the other part which organizations get stuck on is change. You've got to be able to go revisit something that's been working well for the last few years and saying, well, how will that change? So, you know, give you an example. I was on my way to India to speak at my undergrad oh, cool. for the graduation when ChatGPT came out. I just landed in Dubai. 
I was watching tweets and people writing about ChatGPT. And luckily, I managed to log in and I played with it for hours because I was sitting there waiting to take the next flight to Varanasi. And I rewrote my speech for my graduation while I was there because I remembered programming an ICL-1904 computer, which you won't know, hopefully, Jubin. No. Let's just say it was 5,000 times less powerful than the iPhone you have in front of you. Mm. That's what I learned programming on. And that thing had become 5,000 times more powerful in 30 years. And I'm sitting there saying, this ChatGPT stuff is pretty cool. It's kind of more fun in games and entertainment now. But imagine if, if it became 5,000 or 10,000 times better than what it is today. What would life look like? And I came back. I gave that speech. I came back and I sat down with our product leadership in the company and said, if this thing became that good. What could we do? What could we do? What do we need to do today to start getting ready for it? And we're inviting people who are really good at AI to come speak to us. We're trying to get educated, trying to get the entire team educated, trying to see without getting hyperactive about it or like starting to run away, go crazy. We're trying to figure out thoughtfully, what does this mean? What does this mean in terms of how we have to reshape the business and shift the business? And what can we do today in the business to start preparing for it? And you know, one big thing is, you know, AI is all about good data. We've always had an underpinning in good data in cybersecurity at Palo Alto. And we're going back and relooking, saying, are you sure you've done enough to get good data and security? And are we compromising the quality of data by trying to integrate with other people? Or should we be actually going out and saying, no, we'd like to collect this data ourselves as well. So my job is to constantly look at stuff around us, things that are changing, and see how do they impact us, and try and parse whether it's meaningful or not meaningful. Because sometimes you get the wrong signal, chase something else, and you could end up chasing the wrong thing. So, does it feel like the Android or Motorola moment that you had at Google? Like, does it? Did feel I have an Android Motorola moment? Maybe like uh, the Motorola stuff that happened while you and Dennis were there. You know, just the shifts that were happening in the business. Does this feel similar to that? I don't know. I got Android wrong. This is you know one of those moments in my life where people said, you know, what do you do when you get something wrong? I was uh, visiting from London, and Eric knew I'd spent eleven years covering mobile and as part of T-Mobile. And he said to me, oh, we just meet Andy Rubin. He's got this really cool operating system which he wants to build. And having worked in mobile, I remember Andy because I was at T-Mobile and he sold the first sidekick to T-Mobile. So I said, you know what, Eric? There's 300 operating systems in mobile. Why do we want to build one? There's so many out there. Every manufacturer has one. Many telcos have one. Eric listened to me. I listened to Andy pitch. I went back to London. Two weeks later, I found out we bought the company. So I called Eric, Eric. You asked me what I thought. I told you what I thought. And you still did it. It's like, we like diversity of opinion. We don't, doesn't mean we're going to listen to everyone. I said, okay, thank you. Thank the Lord he didn't, right? Because look, Android became relevant in the mobile ecosystem and it's great. I want to revisit the Palo Alto thing in a second. The SoftBank, can I talk about the SoftBank experience? It's so fascinating to me. Were you developing a relationship with Masasan like while you were at Google? Did that come out of thin air? No, no, no. So Masa, who's legendary in terms of the way he operates, I never heard his stories. I read The Power Law recently, and it's got a lot of stories about Masa as well and what he did in the first internet boom. So Masa came to Google, spent time with Eric, because when I was chief business officer, we used to compete with Yahoo Japan in, in Japan. You know, Google search and Yahoo Japan had, we probably had a few percentage points more search share than Yahoo Japan, but it was a significant player in that market. And I think Carol Bartz used to run Yahoo at that point in time, and she's just she had just done a deal with Steve Ballmer saying that 
Bing would power Yahoo in the US, except she'd kind of not paid attention to what happens to Yahoo Japan because Yahoo US was providing a lot of the search technology for Yahoo Japan. Mm. And Masa realized, wait, this means when they go shut down their search innovation, it's all going to be whether Bing wants to do a deal with me or not. And obviously because the Yahoo and Bing deal had been done, it hadn't left much room for Masa to negotiate. So he came over to Google and said, listen, can I work with you guys? And Eric said, I don't even know how to compute. You want Google to power Yahoo Japan? How does that work? We already play in Japan called Google Japan. So to Masa's credit, he and I crafted a structure which was legit where we would power Yahoo Search and we would have separate ad systems so there'd be no issue of price impact or monopolistic pricing behavior because he had his own search sales team. We had our own search sales team. We'd all do our own pricing. So the customers would get a higher quality of search and they'd have choice between choosing us or Yahoo in terms of advertising. So we got a deal done. And that's how Masa and I became friends. We got to know each other. Then he'd come here and he'd hang out in Atherton. We'd drink nice wine, which he likes. Mm-hmm. And in one of those conversations, he's like, why don't you come work with me? And I said, you're kidding me. <laughs> and then, you know, as happens in Silicon Valley, uh, he was persistent. I was in LA at the Four Seasons and he showed up there at a Japanese restaurant to freak the guy who was the chef there because, oh my God, this is Masa-san from Japan. I'm like, yeah, he is. And Masa and I you know, clinched a deal at dinner. This was two weeks before I was getting married. I you know, went to Larry and said, Larry, I want to do something different. And Larry said, you should. And the deal was at the time that you were going to take over SoftBank. You would backfill him. At some point in time, yeah. Yeah. Indefinite future. And then what happened? No, Masa wrote a, I think, 50-year plan when he was 20, which outlined what he was going to do in every decade. So it was not as indefinite. He had said that when he turned 60, he was going to be chairman. Yeah. Which implied that somebody else would be CEO. So we were both, I think he was 58 and I was 48. So we had two years. Yeah. And then things changed. No, actually, when I was there, he moved me up. He and I were the only two people who could sign on behalf of SoftBank Japan. Never had done that in the history of SoftBank. So he was sticking to his word. And then he decided... uh, Maybe one more decade. Possibly. (laughs) Maybe two. I don't know. He's a healthy man. He may live long. But to be fair, do you also think that part of it was that you missed being in the arena? Like you missed... You wanted to be on the operating side? You just strike me as someone that derives so much energy from operating. I didn't see you at SoftBank, so I don't know. But I wonder if part of it was... I had a great time when I was at SoftBank. Look, I, I got spent a lot of time with the Yahoo Japan team. I was still very fond of them. We talked about Yahoo Japan's strategy. They actually did their part. I was on the board of Sprint. I got to invest in a whole bunch of really cool companies, both in Silicon Valley and in India. Even still today, those founders called call me and chat with me about stuff. So it was fun. Again, it's like, I tell you, I don't plan it. So yeah, I enjoyed it. I had a great time. And then... Masa and I decided to do different things and went our different ways. It was great. And was Palo Alto Networks on your radar the whole time when you were there? Like, did you ever think, oh, we should put some money in this company? I didn't even know Palo Alto Networks (laughs) when I was at SoftBank. I didn't didn't know cybersecurity. I kind of like had heard of McAfee because, you know, my laptop probably had some antivirus tool on there, but I didn't know anything about Palo Alto. I was hanging out at home. And what was the first time it came on your radar? I think Jeff Sanders from Hydrogen Struggles called me and said, listen, there's this company would you consider talking to their board? They're looking for somebody on their board. I said, sure. I ended up talking to them and became very apparent very shortly that they're looking for a CEO. That was a Trojan horse. 
And what were the questions that you needed answered? Like, what were the things that you were really keen on picking at about this company? I went through the process. I had lots of good conversations with people on the board, and I got more and more interested as I talked to more people. My predecessor, Mark McLaughlin, great guy. Who was the hired CEO yes, before yeah. you, not yeah. the founder, but no, he, was he was also the hired, hired CEO. CEO. And, you know, he's an ex-West Point guy, high integrity, really about doing the right thing. I felt really good that he'd built a strong foundation in a culturally aligned in terms of how I think about business. Founder who was involved, but not a meddler. You know, there's amazing. He's involved. His skill set is to think great security thoughts and try and shape the direction with the product teams. And he does that. So those are important things. When I went to the interview process and they came back to me and said, we'd like you to do this. I said, I want to go back one more time and meet the founder and the chief product officer. And the reason I did that is when I interviewed with them, they were interviewing me about what I was capable of, what I would do. And clearly whatever I said resonated with them because they liked me. This is near and Lee. Near and Lee. And I said, I want to go back. They're like, what do you want to go back? I said, this time I get to interview them because I want to make sure they're ready for me. And I went there and I talked to Lee and I talked to Nair and I talked to Mark Anderson. And I said, listen, if I come, I come with the following things. What are those things? Can you outline some of them? Well, there was a whole discussion. Look, Palo Alto was great at that point in time, what they were doing, but there was, you know, clearly a product motion and a sales motion that was not as well integrated as it could have been. I said, listen, the best way for us to win is if we win together. This is going to be one cultural entity. It's not going to be multiple cultures in a large company. And you guys have to be fine with that. You know, what was interesting, Jubin, the first three months, I felt a similar feeling when I was at Google walking in saying, I don't know why these people are not with me when I say what I say. So I talked to Bill Campbell, who was at Google. I talked to Jonathan, my friend. I you know, talked to Eric. I talked to a lot of people. And I said, I think we have a communication problem. So I sat down one weekend and I wrote a large, not large, in my mind large, I don't write that much, probably a five or six page Word document, which outlined my beliefs on product, on marketing, on business, hiring, literally for every function. Why do I believe what I believe and how the function should operate? And some of those were learnings from Google, obviously. And I turned that around and I circulated to all the management at Palo Alto, the leaders, and said, this is what I believe. This is why I say what I say. This is after you've been hired. Yeah. Yeah. One of my colleagues at Palo Alto, their wives took that and turned that into a book. So I have a small book, my first book. You're kidding. It's only one copy. It's in my house. She gave it to me. It's called The Belief Document. And it has my beliefs about business. And now when somebody comes into Palo Alto, they all understand this is what I believe. And they're welcome to come debate the belief, but they know why I say what I say. And it became so much easier thereafter. People say, oh, I get it. You don't want me to hire this person because you think A is hires A's and B's hires C's and you're not convinced that that person who wants to hire this person is a good leader yet. It reminds me of the working with Claire doc. Do you know what that is? No. So Claire has a document that was published in Elod's High Growth Handbook, which is where it came on the map. And it's a working with Claire doc that she published at Stripe where she learned it from, I think the CTO of Google at the time did something similar. And it's a two-page document that outlines, here is all the things, not dissimilar, less strategy, more interpersonal dynamics. Like this is what it's like working with Claire. And it cut through so much shit. 
because then people were like, oh, I get why Claire's like this. Oh, I know that if I want to deliver feedback to Claire, I need to be very, very deliberate about it. You know, I shouldn't be scared to do it. When Claire gives me feedback, she's doing it because she cares, even though she can come off as harsh. She says, I say it very directly. That does not mean spirited. It's just direct. You know, those types of things. Do you remember for you what other tenants, maybe if I could go through a few of them, like what are the, maybe we'll start with hiring. What were some of the Nikesh tenants on hiring? I had this analogy of home building. I might have been perhaps building our house at the point in time. And everybody seems to understand it. You know, when you build a house, you hire an architect because the architect has an understanding of how to take your idea and turn that into a visual representation, a functional representation of what you want. You hire an architect. But once you agree with the architect what you want to do together, it's kind of like in business designing the North Star, designing the vision and exactly what you want to get done with the product, you go hire a builder. I have never seen an architect builder. Usually an architect builder is a compromise and ends up doing one bad and the other part good. You hire a builder and the builder knows how to take what the architect's designed and documented and built to their spec, which is amazing. And good builders do a great job. But then when the builder is done, you hire a maintenance guy. The rotor-rooter guy has no idea whether there's a 3 degree incline in the sewage, but he knows it's always like that. <laughs> yeah. And if he sees a hill, he doesn't know whether he should make it go five degrees or two degrees. He's right. just got a three degree incline. He's got to flush it, right? Maintenance people are not good at building. Builders are not good at architecting. Architects are not good at building. In business, we hire one person and expect them to be great at all three. And I've lived that for a very long time. And now I spend a lot of time trying to look at the job. And I ask my team, so in this role, do you expect this person to be an architect? Are there good builders around them? Or is this person a builder and you're the architect? And that ends up in a very spirited conversation. Saying, listen, if you're the product head of cloud security, are you the architect? Are you a builder? Are you really good at putting people together and hiring teams? And you want somebody who's got an independent view of what, how application security should work. If you do, then go hire an architect who has the vision around application security. If you've got the vision of application security and you hire somebody else, you're going to spend your life butting heads with them. And neither of you are good builders and will end up a great plan, a shitty house. And that has caused us to design a much better set of organizational structures around our company where we have a very clear, and we have the same language, right? That's the other part. If you want a high-performing team, they should all know what you mean. I have a funny story, and Phil's probably gonna kill me for telling this story, but I'll tell it anyway. You know, you know that a lot of people who worked with me at Google Europe were Philip and Lorraine and Rachel, who's now at Netflix, and Leanne, who works with me in HR. And Jason, we went on an offsite. And Philip's German, Lorraine's Irish. And there's this management consultant come in they blindfolded eight of us and gave us 31 pieces in our hands. And we had to figure out what piece is missing. It's not hard. There were, I think, maybe six, right, 35 pieces out. So six pieces, six each. But we were just given pieces in our hands. And we all had a different number of pieces. We had to count them together, figure out how many shapes did we have amongst the eight of us and which shape was missing. That was the idea. And I think we failed. <laughs> we spent 30 minutes trying to figure it out. Uh -huh. And I think we're missing an anvil. And I've only seen those in board games, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> and and uh, the reason we couldn't figure out what was missing is because at that point, I'm Philip didn't know what an anvil meant. 
So he kept saying, well, who's got an animal? It's like, I don't have one. I got a horseshoe. <laughs> Nobody else has a horseshoe. Nobody thought about saying whether the horseshoe was the animal or something similar. And I think the illustrative point there was that you have to have a common language. Mm. If you want to communicate, get stuff done faster, we should all know what we're talking about, what is our shorthand, which is why we write documents saying, this is what I believe, this is what we all believe, this is what, you know, we have a thing in a company. What is your North Star? Have you written the North Star for your product? Mm -hmm. What does winning look like? Are we all clear on what winning looks like? So, you know, I always have a principle, nobody comes to work to screw up. Nobody walks to work and says, this morning I'm going to do the worst job possible. Yet somehow we believe somebody did a great job, somebody did a bad job. So why did they do a bad job? When they came in with the right intent, you hired them, they were good people. Because their version of what winning means is different than your version and they went and did what they thought was right. If we had to spend some more time agreeing what winning means, we would have all won together. So part of that is getting that language right. Do you think architectures and builders can be the same person? Are those CEOs? You know, there are ample examples out there where you have people who are better at one thing versus the other thing. The question is not whether one person is everything. The question is, in your team, do you have those skills represented and are you aware of who's good at what? Right? It's a team sport. If it's a team sport, then if I'm good at one, I can rely on my team to do the other. I spent a lot of time with the product people. Surprisingly, I didn't think I was going to be spending as much time in product. I'm designing cybersecurity products today. I was not a product guy at Google. But I do a lot of, I spend a lot of time with my product team and they do a really good job building them. But I'm constantly challenging them saying, what if we did this this way? What if we did this way? Why don't we have this? So I've got really good people who build great products. And on the product side, are there any core tenants that would be in the book of Nikesh? <laughs> <laughs> oh, there are. By the way, I got to get my hands on this book. I, I got to uh, see it's this. It's an easy Word document. I'll send it across. It's not that hard. It's not that insightful. You know, there is, there is stuff on product, obviously, right? And I'll give you an interesting analogy. When I was at T-Mobile, we had this guy come and make a presentation. And he was trying to illustrate the difference between products that sell themselves and products that are solely sold by marketing. Now that doesn't go down well in Silicon Valley. You know, you tell people that this product is a commodity, the only thing that sells is better marketing. Like, holy shit, that's not possible, mm -hmm. right? Because would you invest in a company which all came to you and said, well, there's 20 people who've got the same product, but I got better marketing. You'll say, you're right, get in line. Good moat. Yeah, yeah, good moat, fantastic, right? And what he did was he went on stage, he put six glasses of water on stage. And he made people, 20, 30 people walk up and guess which was which. And there were six brands over there and you had to guess which brand was in which class. What is fascinating is the highest proportion of guesses, and he said there could be multiple glasses with the same brand. It's not guaranteed that your six glasses are the six brands. You could have put forward three of them. So disproportionately, 40% of the glasses were interpreted to be Evian. 5% of the glasses, it was in Budapest, were Budapest's finest, which is tap water from Hungary. It was the opposite. He'd fill half the glasses with water from the tap. And the other half, he had randomly sprinkled some bottled water that he got. But he said, this is all about brand recognition. People believe that Evian is great because it's got the best marketing. There was no difference in taste in most of those glasses of water. You can't tell the difference because you never drink three glasses of water from three different bottles and try and figure out which is which. And he actually illustrated to me the power of marketing. Very often in our world, we spend a lot of time on product development. 
you don't spend as much time on putting it together and how is it going to get marketed and how you're going to get the perception that this is security we're partly in the perception business right you really don't want to find out if my product is more secure than the other you want it to be secure so not only do i have to build a great secure product i also have to make sure the perception of my product that is more secure than the other mm. and that's why you rely on third parties mm-hmm. you know gartner and the others will tell you which one's more secure because they go through rigorous testing there'll be people who pen test these things so there needs to be a full story around product in terms of who how do you build it how is it going to get interpreted how are you going to get the right perception around the product and that's not often how every product manager thinks because we sometimes as like silicon valley get brought up on the idea you know on the flip side you've got google it's a product that sells itself you put a search box in front of me i don't need a manual i don't need customer support i don't have a problem i go type into it and know what it does so mm. you can have that too mm. like google was the opposite challenge or opportunity you know there's pricing is zero promotion was zero product was all that mattered but it's not like you haven't paid attention to products since you joined Palo Alto you bought 15 different companies primarily to oh yes append more product yes of course 15 comp- 14, 17 17 companies Who's counting yes 17 companies like 3 billion plus dollars yeah close to 4 yes that's crazy so that's product right yes did you know that going in you said all right they have a pretty good cash balance the way we're going to win this market is just buy up startups that are innovating No look the story went like this if you look at the structure of cybersecurity it's a 200 billion dollar market roughly annually and historically people had built their swim lanes they built an amazing product in a swim lane with its endpoints you put it on every endpoint identity or sock management or whatever have you and firewalls and people are happy in their swim lane saying i'm in my swim lane i sell product in my swim lane and guess what i can sell a lot of product in my swim lane because the time is 20 or 30 billion dollars i get to 3 4 billion dollars i have 25% market share of auto and i'm a 20 million dollar company this is great i went from nowhere and i built a 20 billion dollar company and my you know venture capitalists are really happy they made it 100x return and we're all happy but then the next guy shows up and says oh the hackers are working on something else and i got the next thing and i'm going to be the next guy with a 20 billion dollar company and life went on And you look around in cybersecurity there was a lot of companies which had hit the 10 or 15 billion dollar 20 billion dollar mark if you're lucky and that's petered down over time which is still true the question is to then say well how do you go from 20 to 40 to 60 to 80 to 100 well clearly you seem to have swim lanes that tap out at 20 billion dollars market cap you just got to grind your way through them what if you were in more than one swim lane a second one a third one a fourth one if you say well that's never been done before so Every time it's been done people have tried to do it by buying something in the next swim lane and screwing it up. A lot of endpoint companies bought stuff in Caspi and other stuff and it didn't work and it just became industry folklore that you don't do that because generally nothing's as good as the first thing that you built. She so said look at that so I looked at that and said okay it's very hard to go back and reinvent what happened in the past. I can't go back and buy stuff that was really important in the past. Where is the puck going? And we sat down and figured out, you know, cloud I spent 10 years at Google Google Cloud was happening AWS was happening cloud was important what's cloud going to do well cloud was going to do two very important things and the other insight was AI believe not five years ago we talked about cloud and AI because Google was talking about AI and I used to be there so the cloud was going to do two things one people have to write a lot of applications in the cloud you had to secure them Google Microsoft Amazon were not going to do it so we started thinking about cloud security so seven of our acquisitions are in cloud security We still acquire on that space and we are now the largest cloud security player so 
Every time you want to take a legacy application and rewrite it in public cloud, you have to make sure you write it securely. Mm-hmm. And that application development process is very different from what used to happen in the past in the mainframe era. In that process, you're probably using a bunch of open source stuff and you're looking at it, putting it together. So we built a cloud security business, which became a new swim lane, which is where we operate and a bunch of other startups operate. And the other thing which cloud is going to do is fundamentally change network structures. Today, the network structure is you're going to take all the traffic back to your data center. Tomorrow it is, I'm just going to send it to whichever SaaS app is out there that I'm using. Why do I need to backhaul it all the way home? Which means I can't put security against that traffic in my data center in this nice, neat little way through a firewall. I've got to do security wherever it goes. If I'm going to work day, if I'm going to Salesforce, if I'm going to the 3,000 companies you guys have funded, where is security going to be applied? Security needs to be applied at the edge. So we built a secure edge security product instead of a firewall security product. That became its own swim lane. And then we says, how is AI going to manifest itself? Well, AI is going to manifest itself in the SOC. You've got to be able to cross-correlate data, get a normalized data lake, analyze it, and stop bad things happening. So we decided these were three new swim lanes that were going to be formed. We looked in our own R&D and said, holy shit, we haven't been spending much time doing any R&D around here. There's companies out there which have been doing it for four years. Uh, you know, in my product part of my book, it generally says that it takes four to seven years to get a good technology product. Whether well, it's YouTube, Google, Uber, it's taken four to seven years to get it really in good. a good enough place yeah. where there's product market fit. Where you consider it best of breed. Yes. And we were four years behind in each of these. So we went down and said, who's working on it? So I must have seen 300 plus companies. Were you leading the M&A charge? Yes. Like you were that involved. It was yes. that strategic to the business. I met every founder. 300 plus founders, <laughs> large, small, mid-size. Yeah. I probably like didn't understand half the stuff, maybe more than I'd poor Lee and Nir would get quizzed by me afterwards. So what did he mean when he said that? What does that mean? How does that work? Yeah. Why not this one? And I think I developed enough of a filter with them that we'd meet seven companies in a space and we'd all talk about them, the fit of the founder, what is he wearing? Why did he do that? Why did he say that? Was he real? He didn't like what the other guy said because he said that. So we'd sit and analyze and we'd call the top two or three back. We'll go through it and then I'd sit and negotiate with them. But we had some principles. One, we're not gonna buy somebody who's not number one or two in their space. Mm-hmm. You get what you pay for. Two, they would have to commit to come work at Palo Alto and run the thing for us. We would not let Palo Alto people run them, which was the biggest internal cultural problem. Because if you had a senior VP who was responsible for the area, he's like, well, great, you're buying me a company, I'll take care of it. Like, no, buddy. Had you taken care of it, we wouldn't have had to buy the company. (laughs) So why didn't you do this? Why didn't you work for this guy? Because he had low money. You do that. Of course. Today, our product leaders are CEOs of acquired companies, not people who worked at Palo Alto before. Mm. Because they kicked our ass Mm -hmm. in the market. We had money, we had people, we had customers. They took a new opportunity, got funded, scrappy, yeah. convinced customers to get to use their products, innovated, and beat us in the space. Why? Sh- who should lead the charge? Yeah, the guy who got beaten or the guy who beat us? Yeah, I don't think there's a debate. Yeah, but it's culturally hard. That's not how companies operate. Yeah, so we probably lost a few senior vice presidents of something in the process. I will say what you and your team probably don't get enough credit for is when you create these swim lanes. There's a bit of an innovator's dilemma that existed at Palo Alto because the core business was firewalls on-prem. Yes. And they were damn good firewalls on-prem. And they still are. Still are. But when you look at the next-gen business, it's growing like 50% a year right now. Slightly more than that, but yes. It's growing much faster even than the core business. Yes. 
at a pretty big number, like billion plus dollar run rate. $2.3 billion going at 60 plus percent. Not but that then you're who's counting. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, right. Exactly. that's right. My point is like, was that a thing that had to be managed? This idea, that's hard to come in and convince the company, especially when the DNA of the company is so ingrained. Was that a thing? You know, I have to say that I am blessed that people like Lee, like Nier. Had the foresight. Yeah, they were ready. I mean, you should talk to Lee and he'll tell you. He says, I think I knew what I was getting into. I asked for Nikesh and I got Nikesh. And that's probably one of the things that you wanted to make sure they knew when you came back to take a bite of the apple. Lee and I went and had a long one and a half hour coffee. He was one of the smartest guys I know. Very first principle thinker. And I said, look, this is what's going to happen. And he outright said, yeah, this is what's going to happen. You come and say you want to do something differently. I've been doing it for 17 years like that. And <laughs> I'm going to wonder why you want to do it differently. And you're going to tell me why you want it differently. And I'm going to have to figure out what to do with it. I'm like, yep, you said it. And to his credit, to this day, you know, he's one of the most amazing people. We talk about this. I ask him for things. He analyzes it. He thinks, yeah, let's do it this way. Or he'll tell me that. That's a silly idea. Let's do it differently. And I love that about him. And same thing happens with Nir. Nir is a little more emphatic in his representations, but similar in the outcome we achieved. And, you know, yesterday I was at the Morgan Stanley Conference and somebody said to me, oh, we learned that one of your acquisitions didn't work. I said, you know what? I done 17. If that's my track record, that's amazing because you got more than 75% of work better than anybody else out there. Why don't you think more companies do this? Like obviously Cisco ran this playbook. It's the execution that's really hard. I don't think the idea is super novel. I think creating swim lanes to grow the company makes a lot of sense. It's hard because it requires a lot of discipline. It requires a lot of inspection. It requires a lot of prodding because, you know, it's just like you just don't buy it and drop ship it and get 200 people from a different company to adapt to a 5,000 people then or now 14,000 people culture. Everything has to be reconnected. And that's a process. It requires a lot of people behaviors. It requires managerial behaviors. It requires embracing. I say this, you know, like I was in a meeting where one of our teams was talking to the founder of a company we liked. We hadn't done anything yet. And I said to my team, I said, listen, we're going to buy this company. So now the normal process when you buy a company, you agree a term sheet and then you do diligence for 30 days. And then after the diligence, you bring them in. I said to my guys, I said, there are two ways to do diligence. One is to say, I'm going to find everything that's wrong with you and I'm going to put in a sheet of paper and figure it out and I'm going to make sure that I do a good job in diligence. As the other way is to do that, but remember, this person's going to work with you for the next five years at Palo Alto. What you do in the next 30 days is going to determine how they feel about you. So at the end of 30 days, I not only want you to do a good job with the diligence, but I want this person to feel that you've, they've been embraced from day one as if they are a Palo Alto Networks employee. And that philosophy has made the difference, I think, in most of our acquisitions, whether they're going to be successful or not. Because we treat the company from the day we decide we want to be partners with them as our employees. Until we sign the deal, all bets are off. We can always say no. But you don't have to treat them like they're on probation and being evaluated for 30 days and say, show me that code. Why did you write the code that way? Show me that. Why did you do that way? Dude, it's a scrappy company. They did a lot of stuff to get to where they got to and they won. Let's make sure we treat them with respect and let's make sure that we embrace them from day one. And if you say, after looking at everything, I'm not convinced this is the right strategy policy, we'll do that. And we've, you know, out of 17, we walked away from two different companies for different reasons. But we never let anybody feel that we didn't love them. We didn't want them. We didn't want them to be part of the team. And I say to the founders, when I said, listen, you're going to be part of Palo Alto 
And remember this, and I say this to people, no negotiation is finished on day one, whether it's in life or at business. Every day you have a new negotiation with your partner or your boss or your manager. So remember that. There's a quote that you gave, which I loved, and I wanted you to explain it. The reason we're happy people is because we romanticize the past. Can you explain that? You know, as you grow older, shit happens. You go through stuff. You know, whether you got stopped by a cop and got a ticket, you were miserable at that moment. Oh my God. You know, he stopped me. And like, I'm a paranoid guy. I don't like getting stopped by cops. And I have like probably PTSD of that. But then two weeks later, you're telling the story to your friends. Like, oh my God, you won't believe what happened. I got stopped by a cop and thankfully he let me go. He didn't give me a ticket. And I, stuff happens to you. And you're, it's traumatizing in the moment. But after a while, you rationalize it away because you're happy, you're alive, you're enjoying life, and it kind of happened in the past. It's in the rear view mirror. And I'm just giving you a simple example, but a lot of bad things happen to people too, which are not happy things. But the only reason we live a great life is because somehow we get past those things, we romanticize them away, we don't let them scar us. Because imagine if you everything bad that happened in life, you change your behavior and it scarred you you'd not be a happy person. So I think that's what life's about. Do you feel like you can brush those things off more easily now than you used to be able to? I ask, let me frame the question. You're, how big is <laughs> Palo? You tell me I'm getting older? How big is Palo Networks? How many people? Uh, 14 and a half thousand. 14 and a half thousand people. Most things that come to you are not the incredibly exciting things of the day. Most of the things that come to you are probably, correct me if I'm wrong, challenges. Oh yeah, no, no, I say solved. all the easy problems are solved before they get to me. <laughs> yes, because right. my team loves it. They solve all the easy problems really well. Sometimes they solve very hard problems really well. <laughs> and then well. they come and tell you how they solve the problem. Yeah, of course, which is great. <laughs> By the way, that's what you need. If you want to get a job as a leader or a C-level executive, learn how to be a problem solver, not a problem representer. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess, does it get old after a while or do you have the ability to just let those things brush off? Because it's it would kill you. You have to care enough that you want to do something about it. Mm-hmm. And you can't care so much that you're going to hurt yourself. So it's a balance. The way I see it, when somebody represents a problem, there's one thing about going and fixing it right away. That's fine. Well, I was with a customer yesterday. They said they had a problem. Palo Alto should have fixed it faster. We didn't. We got together with the customer. We got it sorted. But my job starts when that problem is fixed. I go back and do root cause analysis, like why did we end up in that place in the first case? How are we gonna make sure this never happens again? So I learn from that problem to say, how do I go solve it so that it never happens again? And how do we set up our system? Or what was it in the system that caused that problem to appear and us to not get a great outcome to happen? So that's my job. My job is less so to solve that immediate problem. There are people in my team who are really good at it and they'll solve the problem. They'll make sure the customer's happy or whatever have you. My job is to go back and do a root cause and say, is this a you know, isolated incident? Is this something in the way we run our process? There's something we can do differently in the future that this doesn't happen again? Something else can happen, but this cannot happen again. So that's what you do. You've met a large majority of the company, haven't you? In the pandemic, I realized something which I hadn't done in my life, to be honest. I started getting really interested in everybody who worked at the company because you know, I read some book or heard some, some guy saying, the biggest impact of the pandemic is associated with anxiety and uncertainty. 
pandemic hit, everybody's worried. Am I going to get COVID? Am I going to die? Am I going to get in trouble? Do I have a pre-existing condition? That's going to, like, none of us knew what the hell was going to happen. Yeah. So I think generally human anxiety got heightened. Uncertainty got heightened. And then there was this thing where my office is shut. But then, oh my God, there's this stable thing in my life. I'd get up in the morning, get dressed, get in my car, drive to work, be there for eight hours or nine hours, and I come back home. And suddenly that's shut down. Now people got used to it, but at that point, like, oh my God, I'm not going to the office. Is this thing ever going to open? What if something changes? The office is going to shut down and only half of us invited back. So, and you saw that, you know, revenues went to zero, oil prices went to zero. People wondering what's going to happen. Retail stores are closed. My job doesn't exist. So there's a tremendous amount of anxiety and fear and uncertainty. And this person who I was talking to says, listen, your job as a leader is to create certainty. And that hit me. I'm like, that's interesting. How do I create certainty? It's just simple. Tell your employees you have their back. Tell them, don't worry about it. Go deal with your lives. Focus on your family. Make sure this COVID thing doesn't impact you. Make sure your parents are fine. Your sister is fine. Your brother is fine. Give them certainty that you're there for them. That's all we did. Went to our employees and said, nobody's going to get fired. We've got your back. We'll be there for you. We pivoted hard and spent a lot of time creating programs for our employees and making sure we're there for them. And in that process, I realized it's not enough to just say that. You've got to do things. So I started doing 50 people Zooms three years ago. How often? Every week. Every week. I have two this week. Random? Random. In the company? In the company. Anyone from... Customer service to reception to security researcher to cloud developer to you have two sales this week. Rep. Yeah, I did one on Monday with fifty people. What's the meeting? How does it go? You sign up in Zoom. I've had people sign up from cars, from outside soccer practice with their kids. It doesn't matter. You sign up. I stand there. I say, "Listen, here's what we're going to do. You tell me who you are, how long you've been at Palo Alto, what do you love about this place, what could I do better, what could we do better, and what concerns you, and what do you hear in the market." And the stuff that I get is amazing. How candid are people? Very much so. Very much so. It feels like a safe space for them. They feel like they can approach you. I take notes. I follow up. I sometimes say, that's complex. Can you write me an email? I'm going to have somebody take a look into it. And it's just amazing. People just write to me. People talk to me. People tell me stories. A lot of them are complimentary with the way a company deals with it. It creates that bond. I think what's interesting is because people aren't coming to work, that over time those bonds get weakened, right? So this reinstitutes that bond with the team in terms of, yes, Palo Alto cares. And after people see that happen, I must have gone through a few thousand people. Thousand? A few thousand, not yeah. a thousand, a few thousand. Yeah. I've done this now for two and a half years. Yeah. So sometimes they're once a week, sometimes they're once every two weeks, sometimes they're two in a week. So it all depends yeah. on, I try and average one a week. Uh-huh. That's 200 a month, that's 2,400 a year, give or take maybe 2,000, I miss a few. So 2,000, maybe four, four, four and a half thousand people Yeah, the last two and a half years. It reminds me a little bit of how tactics, I think Bezos said this, tactics inform strategy. And so I do think that it makes people feel comfortable and safe. I also think it's probably very informative for you. Oh, very much. So my you're point. not getting the bullshit <laughs> through the chain of command. You're getting it from the ground. Yes. I think my, my, my direct team, every Thursday when I sit down with them for two hours, they're like, oh my God, wonder what he learned this week. <laughs> <laughs> Because they're not in those meetings. They're not learning. Right. I have me and one person who's taking notes to make sure we don't miss anything. Well, they find out about it when Nikesh is oh, sending do. emails at 10 oh, p.m. Oh, they, oh, they, oh, they do. And sometimes, you know, people are not, they're not petty. The employees are amazing. They actually are thoughtful. 
And remember, every one of them works in cybersecurity. They're smart people. They have a point of view. This allows them to share their point of view without any retribution. Dude, I appreciate you doing this. Super fun. I always close these things the same way. The first, are you hiring? Is there any key roles that you want to use the platform to shout out? We're always hiring really good people who are passionate. I used to be involved in the hiring process of Google, which I thought was unique to Google in the early days. And I remember hiring a, I think a British Olympic team roar now who runs Google Europe, Matt Britton. I remember hiring the knitting champion of the world at that point in time. And you'd wonder what is common in both those people. What's common in those people is that to win something, they sacrifice a lot. And they know what winning feels like. They knew that to get really good at X, you have to smile and not be able to do Y or Z. That passion, that dedication is what we want. Those kinds of people go far in life because they've learned that early in their life. And if you have smarts and you have cybersecurity awareness on top of that, we love those kind of people to come work for us. When you hear the word grit, what comes to mind? What do you think of? Determination. Nikesh Aurora, thank you. That's it. Thanks for tuning in. Feel free to check out more than 100 past interviews that we've done and more amazing guests to come every Monday morning. This episode was edited by Eric Johnson from Lightning Pod. Thank you to all of my listeners for tuning in for an hour plus every week.